Hello, everybody. So we have been collecting culture data from hundreds of companies since 2016, and there's some really fascinating culture patterns that have emerged. We are super excited to chat about this today on Empowering Workplaces. Join us. Welcome to Empowering Workplaces, a show for everyone who wants to make work better and more fulfilling. We are your hosts, culture designer Maddie Grant and organizational psychologist Sonia Lucina. Join us in today's awesome conversation. So, hey, we are here with Jamie Notter, who happens to be my partner at Propel. Um, but this is a very exciting conversation for us because you know, we are very huge on data in this podcast. If you're a regular listener, you know all about that. And it turns out that we have been collecting data, um, the three of us um, with Sonia, uh, for several years now. And we actually have some really exciting um, sort of analysis and insights to share from that data. So we decided we would ask Jamie to come in and be our guest for today, you know, and talk a little bit about that stuff. So before we dig in, um, Jamie, do you want to give a little bit of background about yourself and really about how the culture assessment um, that we're going to talk about kind of came about? And sure. Sonia, of course, you know, jump in because I know you know it all from, from the question pro side of the fence. <laughs> Now, I'm extremely excited to be invited back. I don't know if that makes me special that anyone yes. else come back for a second <laughs> appearance on this podcast. So I'm excited about that. Um, as, as Maddie mentioned, we are partners in Propel. And even before we started working together, we started writing books together. And Humanize from 2011. And when Millennials Take Over from 2015, uh, all of the research from that book went into this culture assessment. That's how it started with actually our other colleague, Charlie Judy came to us when he wanted to create this and said, I keep going back to the books you guys are writing. This is what we need to be measuring. Um, so the, the model in our culture assessment is based on that, the analysis from those two books, which was pointing out, which something that we thought was uh, fairly apparent, which is traditional management is going away. Like it still exists that management from the 20th century, command and control, changes hard, that stuff, still there, but we're transitioning towards future of work. And that's the what we were studying in, in, in our case studies in those books were organizations that are radically transparent and completely innovative and agile and all these things. And so for us, when we built that culture assessment, it wasn't to tell you whether your culture was good or bad, right? It's to tell you where are you on this continuum? How traditional are you and how futurist are you on these these sort of eight major areas of culture that we focus on so that's that's one of the most important things because so many people ask me right when we do the assessments Sonia knows this they're like no you got to tell us what's good or bad about this i'm like <laughs> I, can't. I i can tell you where you are but you got to tell me whether that's making you successful and if it is then you keep it right and if it's not then you got to change it um yeah. so you, you, if you don't start with that really clear picture of where you are it makes it really hard to say so that's the background yeah, so actually, Sonia, if you wanted to share a little bit, so the the culture assessment was built in 2016, um, and it was a few years later that it was um, acquired by Question Pro. Um, and so, you know, for us, it's been amazing because we're able to to sort of get the culture assessment out there 
um, to so many more different kinds of companies than before. Um, so anyway, Sonia, if you have any um, in like thoughts about that, like I would love to hear just for some background. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think, um, you know, when I first met both of you, I, I thought that the concept of how you think about culture is just phenomenal. And I love it. It matched up with my personal philosophy so well. And I think that's part of the reason why we work so well together is that it's not necessarily to your point, are you good or you bad, but who do you want to be and how are you delivering on that promise? And unfortunately for a lot of organizations, you know, the green, yellow, red is ingrained to them in a sense of like, yeah, mm -hmm. thumbs up, you did really great. And we're going to benchmark you across other companies. Um, but really so much of what we've talked about is, is taking a look inward and saying, what kind of leadership, what kind of philosophy do you want to have? And is that translating into your actions? And that's one of the biggest areas. And that's why I'm so excited today for us to talk about data and the kinds of insights that come from it, because we were just chatting before. I think we're now at a point that we have over a million and a half data points. We've done over 25,000 assessments. And that was across a lot of different kinds of organizations. And so it comes with this wealth of information and insights and knowing how to have the conversation on the different on the different measures with the organizations, but also we're just mentioning that taking action from that data is so important. And it's not just about, you know, my traditionalist, contemporary, futurist, what does that mean? But if I want to be, maybe if I'm traditionalist, but I want to be contemporary or I want to be futurist, what does that look like? What do I do with this information practically? Um, what do we change in our organization? How do we communicate that? And I think that that's just now is the moment. It's always the moment, right? I feel like now I need to catch myself. It's always the moment for organizations. Like, I feel like if you if you heard me like over the years, now is the moment, now is the moment. Because I feel like there's still so much opportunity. So I'm like, I'm just going to keep saying it. And, you know, somebody will believe me that now you have to do it or you're really going to fall behind. Um, but it's this great opportunity because it, I think there is a lot of confusion in the labor market because we've talked a lot about, um, you know, layoffs. And now, you know, we're recording this in, is it February? It's February, February. <laughs> 2020. What, what month is it? What day is it? What year is it? Oh um, and, you know, unfortunately, when you open the news, when you open for a lot of us, our LinkedIn feeds, a lot of people are talking about layoffs. And recently, labor market statistics came out and showed how many jobs were added. And so mm -hmm. for anyone that's involved in employment and thinking about, you know, can we afford the quote unquote luxury of working on our culture right now? You absolutely have to, and it's not a luxury. And we recently, um, just in January, did a survey, like during all of this, like, I guess, chaos and misunderstanding of the labor market. Um, we did a survey across the United States of just over 700 workers. And we talked, we asked how important is culture when you decide to join a company. And so more than a third of workers said that the culture culture of a company they're considering joining plays a big role in their decision. And then 71% that say that it plays at least some of their role. And now this is during the time when we'd say like, oh, you know, is the labor market changing? Are we going into a recession? What's happening? And people are saying, I don't care that atmosphere, the people, the philosophy that I'm surrounded by is incredibly important to me. And that makes me very happy because I don't think um, as humans and how much work 
makes up who we are, those are the things that we shouldn't compromise. So anyways, um, see why I love working with you both. <laughs> We're well, definitely I'll, passionate around the same things. <laughs> I'll, I'll, the one comment though about the sort of job market and is are people nervous because there's layoffs and so they're not going to leave. What I, and maybe this is a research challenge for you. I would like to know what those percentages are for the top talent. I would like to know what those percentages are for the people that you can't afford to lose. Because I bet they're closer to 100%. They care about. Oh culture, yeah. Right. Yeah. So like I and it, so I mean I think everyone cares about culture and the the data supporting that. But it's it's I mean how do you identify top talent? It's probably hard to do research wise. But this the, that's why the the environment for me is not the important factor. Like everyone is under pressure mm -hmm. to beat the competition, and you don't yeah. do that with B and C players, right? Mm -hmm. And A players they're in demand. And so they're paying much more attention to this stuff. And mm -hmm. I think, I think, again, I think the smart companies get that. And that's why, that's why they're yeah. really doing this work. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's, um, let's dig into, uh, to some of the insights, but first um, we need to talk about like what exactly the culture assessment, you know, measures um, so that our audience can understand then the insights that Jamie's going to share. So do you want to tell us a little bit about um, the model behind it? Sure, sure. So I mentioned before it measures sort of from traditional to futurist. And we measure eight what we call culture markers, um, things like agility, collaboration, innovation, transparency. These are not new concepts in the culture world, um, but we do believe those eight that we identified are specifically like, I call them the battlegrounds uh, in the shift from traditional to futurist. This is what you have to figure out. I might, you can't be futurist unless you're futurist in transparency. You know what I mean? And agility and innovation and collaboration, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we measure these eight things and, <clears throat> you know, it's a five point scale, roughly between three and four, we call it contemporary, right? If you're under a three, you're pretty traditional. If you're in the fours, I think you got to get above a 4.1 technically to be futurist, but we don't see as many people there. I think the overall average from the original data set is about a 3.69. So most people are between three and four on this stuff. And some of the markers like inclusion and collaboration and growth get up at around 3.8, you know, and I think agility is more like 3.5, innovation maybe 3.7. So there's some range on how organizations are doing this, but for the most part, people kind of fall in the middle. Um, well, and just to jump in there, what that means is what we see around us all the time, right? Is that, you know, companies who've been around a long time are suddenly having to, to do things differently, you know, way before the pandemic, um, but just be more um, digital, you know, and, and use new technologies and all that kind of stuff. And then of course the pandemic happened and everybody had to change everything immediately, <laughs> you know, so, um, but, but it's not just these brand new startups, right? There's a million companies that have been around a long time that have to just keep up with the ever-changing times. And that's what, what you're saying is um, in that kind of contemporary range is the transition really from traditional management, which worked for a long, long, long time um, through to a more futurist leaning uh, yeah. kind of way of working. Yeah, traditional, traditional management has not been abandoned but we are picking pieces of it and saying, you know what, we can't do it like that anymore. We're going to move this way. Um, but that's actually what sort of made the underlying culture patterns show up is because I started to see, wait a minute, it's consistent. 
we're consistently mm -hmm. staying traditional in these things, but moving more futurist in these things. Um, and so for each of the eight markers, I found a, a pattern underneath each one. What are some of the things you've seen stay more traditionalist? So um, if you think about it within a pattern, like my favorite example is innovation. Because this was mm. the first time I saw the pattern. Before. Oh, no! <laughs> Before I had done the, the, the analysis, I kept hearing this with clients, right? I mean, I'm talking to them and I keep, I'm debriefing their data and I'm saying the same thing over and over again. I said, now notice within innovation, we actually measure eight things within each of the eight markers, right? There's eight yeah. data points. You're valuing in your culture. If you get a high score, it means that piece is very present in your culture. It's valued in that culture. Yeah. And so I, they're valuing things like creativity. People can be creative in their work. Uh, future focus. We are not stuck in the past. We are focused on the future. We do inspirational things. This is not drudgery, mundane. Those are all getting fours, high threes, right? And these are organizations that if I ask them, do you think innovation is important? Everyone says yes to that now, right? Yeah. Um, and then we look down on the low threes or the high twos, and we have things like, uh, do you take risks? Is failure open? Mm. Uh, do you create containers within which people can run experiments? Uh, you know, it's, do we do beta testing? Do we test new ideas? Do we take things that are unfinished and show them to people and get feedback? They're like, oh, no, we would never do that. <laughs> or we do it less. They probably do it some. Yeah. But this is like, I, we call this incomplete innovation. You're valuing the concepts of innovation more than the practices. And if you do that, like you need those concepts. If you don't do creativity and future focus, like your innovation is going to fall flat. But you also need some of the practices. And if you're leaving that imbalance, you're probably getting like a little bit of innovation, like some around the edges, maybe. Um, but you're not really unlocking the value that you could if you had yeah. a culture that valued it's okay. Like you, you can't value experimentation without also out without also valuing failure, right? Like yeah. I tell people this. Yeah. Like if you're going to measure your your experimentation, you got to measure what percent fail, because if yeah. that if that's zero, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> right? you're doing well, it wrong. I, I can it. also see that like maybe a lot of companies sort of. Um, bucket innovation into one department, like, you know, product mm. development or something like that. But nobody else in the organization gets to change or, you know, test out these new ideas. Well, that, that, that's another, that's one way that it shows up. That was actually the other piece of innovation data that is the most interesting to me. There's a, there's a fourth uh, practice of innovation data point, and we call it permission, permission to hack. Right, which is, hey, if I want to try something new, my manager will back me up on it. Right, like we're working on this program and I'm like, hey, let's do this new. I know I'll get backed up. I can hack this, these things. That one actually scores more futurist. Uh, it's up with the concepts. And the first time I saw this data, we were working with a, a, a small organization that, in my opinion, was doing pretty well in innovation in an industry that was not really known for it. They're a nonprofit. You wouldn't expect mm. them to be good at it. They were good at it. And I was impressed. But they had this pattern and they had this high permission to hack. And I was debriefing with the management team. I said, hey, what, what's up with that? How come you, you won't run experiments, but you can hack stuff? And the CEO said, I can tell you exactly why. Because you can hack by yourself. You can hack within your work stream. Mm. You don't have to tell other people. You don't have to risk that someone will find out that your hack didn't work. So they had little tiny stovepipes of individuals doing innovation all day long, and they weren't telling each other about it. 
and they're leaving money on the table. They had opportunities to drive real growth, right, with powerful innovation if they brought, you know, their forces together and did it intentionally. Uh, But they let everyone do it on their own time, and it was just not producing the results they wanted. What I love about that example is that it shows, like you literally just said it, like this organization looked pretty good on innovation, right? But this pattern is so nuanced, but is also holding them back like so much, right? So, you know, it feels like these patterns that that we've identified in the research, like they're just huge. You know, once you know that you're like, dang, like that's immediately, I, I can think of 12 things I can do to, you know, to change that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, this is, this is where the rubber meets the road. And we've talked about this before. You already mentioned it, Sonia. Like if you see these patterns and don't like do something about it, you've wasted everyone's time. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And, and I get this all the time. Originally, why Maddie and I got into sort of the consulting business around this stuff is because people would look at the data and say, this is amazing. What do we do with it? Yeah. And, and so that's the second piece where it's like, you have to, you have to understand the patterns. That's usually a missing link, right? That the, that the assessment provides, they, they, they knew something was there, but they couldn't put their fingers on it. The data suddenly reveals that like, Oh my, we had this pattern. No wonder we're not getting the innovation. Like now what do we do? I'm like, all right, well, you got to tell me, how that pattern is messing with your success. Because like, we'll do a a culture priorities workshop with clients and they'll look at the data and they'll say, wow, we got all these patterns. I'm like, well, well, tell me about your really important success drivers. And they're like, what? (laughs) Uh, I don't know, revenue? Like, no, I get revenue, but what drives that? What are the, what's underneath that? And it's the organizations, honestly, that are smarter that say, wait a minute, we will not thrive unless we are better at innovation. Like they got to make that case. They got to say, yeah. so this in our industry, what we're doing, we got to up our game on this or we're going to come in second, third or fourth. And that's not acceptable. Yeah. Once they get that clarity, I'm like, great. So what's your priority? Like, well, we need innovation to look like this. We have them spell it out. What does it look like in your context? What are the behaviors that are associated with it? Right. So that when people see that, they're like, oh, we don't have this now in this culture and we need it. Yeah. Once we get that, it's like, well, then what are you going to change? What? We call it plays in a playbook. What plays are you going to run? You know, like a, a lot of the innovation, people want more innovation. A lot of the plays are metrics based. Like literally yeah. measuring how many experiments happened, literally measuring how many innovative ideas got generated and acted on. Um, and that's just, that's a process change. You didn't measure that before. Yeah. Now you measure it and you get new behaviors. Yeah. And I wonder if it's also like an internal branding change, because one thing I think about a lot is as, as long as, all of us have been saying beyond the three of us, like people in general, like, oh, I don't know, failing is good. Failing is good. You learn from failing. Like failure just as a word has this negative connotation. And so I think I've started, and I, I hear you say experiments too a lot, Jamie, and I've started to talk about in form of experiments a lot more because I think people are more open to it. Like cognitively, it's like, oh, I'm going to test. I'm going to experiment. I'll try. Like I'll be bold. I'll, I'll do something different versus like, oh, you know, I'm okay if I fail. Because for whatever reason, as people, we're not that okay to fail still. (laughs) We would much rather be successful, you know, but if you're like experimenting, and you know, some of these things are, you know, going to lead you like they're going to give you greater advancements and others you're going to learn from a little bit of is, you know, just like reframing that because to me, like, 
what you're saying is this like divide between intention and execution. And I was laughing because like any of our listeners know I have sometimes the most random analogies. Um, <laughs> but the three of us, maybe Jamie a little unwillingly, we're talking about like drinking water before we hopped on this podcast. And, and it's something as simple as drinking water, right? Like you sh it's important to drink two liters a day. Yet a lot of us struggle like drinking two liter of water, like all of us, like it's not like, oh, I can't believe that, Sonia. That's so weird. And so <laughs> something that's almost as simple as that concept, you think about the organization and you think about these phenomenal intentions, you know, that one example being innovation, but then how do you execute effectively? And so I think it is a lot, one, to your point around measuring that, that you have the data to clearly say it's wonderful that our philosophy is alive and well inside of our organization, but our execution around it can be greatly improved. And so how do we create that, that it's more approachable to people that maybe it's measured? Like, you know, to your earlier point, like, hey, how many experiments did you run this quarter? Or like, we're going to make a goal to have X number of experiments and we're going to do that inside sales and inside marketing. And like, oh my gosh, like ever, <laughs> I think about the number of things like I've tried like in my career and even at Question Pro, like I've been around for a little bit over two years and I'll come in, I'm like, we're going to try this strategy and I feel so good about it. And I have like, all the reason to believe it's, you know, it's going to give us more this and that. And then it does. And I'm like, well, I'm glad we tried that because I really had all the reason to believe that it would work. It didn't. What do we learn from it? Okay, let's do the next thing. Um, I don't, sometimes I've called it a failure. More often I've called it a learning experience. <laughs> Again, all about branding. Um, but I love that divide between the kind of how you think about like the philosophy versus how you act on that philosophy inside the organization. I bet that inside a lot of these markers and the different things that are measured, you're probably likely to see that the break between the two. Well, and Sonia, you didn't, you didn't mention your fancy water bottle with the, the <laughs> market. <laughs> yes. You know, maybe you didn't hit your two liter goal, but you did half of that. So like, you know, can you, yeah just do better <laughs> even yeah. in smaller ways because I think at this point baby steps is better than no steps <laughs> yeah. no. and it's okay to not do it every day either it's like how do you set these goals around your culture and you can't show up every day hitting all of your marks but I, I love the philosophy as of late that I'm, I'm hearing more and more like it's more talked about on the individual level but I think it's for it should be it's very relevant for organizations too it's not necessarily like what are you, do, you doing that is amazing, but how are you making yourself better every day? And I still, I strive towards some of these things, but the days that I can't drink my water, it's probably because there was chaos. And you know what? I'm glad I just made it through the day. Like that's okay too. Um, and you get up the next day and you follow these things. So I think it's for organizations also to think, think about how are we advancing on an ongoing basis? How are we trying to be better every day ourselves than we were the day before? And then also giving yourself grace during the times that maybe you can't, but you're keeping this bigger picture in mind because the North, you have a clear North of what you want to accomplish and how you're measuring your steps towards it. Yeah, no, we, we so issues like this about how you're going to do innovation spill over into other parts of the culture. So we yeah. end up doing work with, senior leaders on how do you manage your quarterly goals? Mm -hmm. Not just around innovation, but at all. How do you manage them? Because if that process is full of you missed your target, you're going to be punished, then no one's ever going to do innovation, right? Yeah. Instead, we need people to say, 
these are targets. We built a model in our head about how to reach this target. And a good friend of mine, Joe Gerstant, uh, gave me a quote years ago that I use all the time. He said, all models are wrong, but some are useful, <laughs> right? It's just a model. And so the point mm -hmm. is we're running the model. And at the end of the model, we either hit our target or we didn't. Either way, we're learning something. Yes. And about too many cultures have the target rooted in, if we don't hit it, we failed, we'll be punished. And so the culture change actually gets pretty broad. It's like people, people use the French culture eats strategy for breakfast. I'm like culture and strategy are two sides of the same coin. You can't, yeah. you can't do one without the other or change one without necessarily changing the other. And so the culture change sort of goes, goes both deep and wide. Uh, not just the specifics of how do we change processes or change job descriptions in order to have more innovation happen. That's the whole Google 20% time from back in the day. That was changing job descriptions to let people experiment, right? Yeah. Um, but it's it's also getting to other areas around budgeting, around strategy, uh, around operations that 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 have implications for the behaviors that we're trying to achieve. Uh, so we're... We're running low on time, but I want you, Jamie, to throw out a couple more of the culture patterns that you've seen to like whet everybody's appetite. Because there's eight of them, which clearly we do not have time yeah. to get yeah. into. Yeah. But at least, you know, a couple more would be awesome. Yeah. So uh, the ones that I end up working more directly with clients with, innovation is a big one. Transparency, the pattern there, we call it lagging transparency, which is we value the reactive transparency. If you ask me for information, I'll share it with you. So of course we're transparent. Uh, we don't value proactive transparency. We don't build systems and processes that enable the information to be over in your court even before you had to ask. And that's one, it's because people do not see that they're doing that. They think they're being transparent because I'm always happy to share information, but you're waiting until it's too late. By the time you've asked me for it, the customer's already frustrated with you that you didn't have the answer, right? And you're telling them that you have to wait and get back to them, which is not horrible, but they're only going to put up with that excuse so many times. If you had systems and process so that you at least knew half of what they were asking about, it's like, hey, I do know some of that answer. Here's what I know, but let me go get some more details from my colleague. Such a big difference for customer service. Uh, so that's where I see the lagging transparency show up. And then um, heavy agility. Agility is one of the more traditional, uh, I think it's the most traditional of, of all the eight markers, which doesn't really surprise me. Um, but the pattern here usually surprises people. We value moving quickly, we value high quality, and we even value change. Like if you ask people the high level, do we embrace change here? Most of them are saying yes, because like, how can you not these days? Yeah. <laughs> We're embracing change. What scores really traditional um, is do we, fix things when they're broken. Can they, if something's broken, can we fix it with ease? And if something's no longer providing value, we can stop it. And the answer to that is no, we can't. <laughs> we don't fix things and we don't stop things. So we're running a hundred miles an hour. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> we're changing fast, but we have weights around our ankles because we don't fix things and we don't stop things that are, that are sort of wasting our time. Um, and so it's, it's, that's an opportunity cost issue, right? We're, we could be doing so much more. We think we're being quite relatively agile or as agile as we can be. Uh, again, we're being as agile as we can be wearing weight, weights around our ankles, right? So if we, if we take those off, 
if we could, I mean, I, the clients, when they get into the action planning, we need to do after action reviews. Every time we finish a project, we need to review it and say what worked and what didn't, and do we need to keep doing this, right? Um, those kinds of processes get implemented to try and do this. Actually, we had a client that just completely overhauled their project management system because it was in there that the sort of missteps were happening. The, the inability to fix something is because this person over here wasn't invited to the meeting and they actually had the answer. Uh, and instead they did a much more sort of centralized, okay, everyone has to manage projects in roughly the same way so that we have visibility. This connects to the transparency one. So we have visibility about what's going on and we get the right people in the room to make those decisions to stop things or to fix things when they need to be fixed. So those two, and then I'll mention one more. Collaboration is the other big <laughs> one. This is not new and not surprising because it's about silos, but we value collaborative individuals. Do people help each other here? Yes. I ask you for help, you're gonna help me. We have a collaborative culture. We love collaboration. It's on the poster on the wall. Um, <laughs> but, but collaborative groups are not as easy to accomplish. Hmm. We need collaboration across levels in the hierarchy. It's really hard to coordinate. If you need, you need to get across those silo boundaries, it's just not easy. Like it happens, but the pattern we call it awkward collaboration. Like we're doing collaboration, but half the time it's like we don't know who's leading and the dance looks really bad. So um, those are the ones that sort of like top four are agility, collaboration, innovation, transparency um, that typically get people moving in the action planning uh, more quickly because they can, they can more quickly spot what to do about that. Some of the other ones around growth and solutions are a little bit harder. Um, I call it the more advanced culture work, but we do have some, some folks doing that work as well. So speaking of, you know, moving into taking action from this data, um, could you tell our listeners just, I don't know if it's a, you know, a few strategies you've seen work well or a few tips or ways organizations have been able to actually effectively identify like which data is most important to us and then trans translate that into action? Because I think for a lot of our um, listeners, I would bet, given the conversations I've been having over the last like several months, maybe even over a year, is that that action part for a lot of organization is is the toughest. So I'd love to hear your opinion of what you've seen. Um, when does it work effectively? Like what are some things companies can do? Yeah, I, I think one of the biggest missteps is because you, you've seen the data. When you see that data, it's a lot, right? Yeah. A lot of stuff and, it, and a lot of it's important. And the initial response is, well, then we need to do A and B and C right away. And I stop people and say, no, you need a set of priorities because the priorities have to be about what drives your success. And so give me like four buckets of, of areas that you think are priorities for you right now based on this data. If this is your data, then what are the four areas we need to focus on and describe those really clearly? Because then when you do the action planning, you get much better action plans. You know what I mean? You get much more targeted stuff. And then like the second thing that I'm always forcing people to do is when you, when you build a playbook and you say, all right, we are going to change some things. We are going to change project management or the way we measure innovation or whatever it is. Um, you need a mix of what I call making it real change and making it permanent, right? Making it real are your quick wins. They're very visible, right? Like, like that changing the dashboard. That goes up tomorrow and everybody sees it in tomorrow's dashboard and says, wait a minute, why are we measuring this now? Oh, that's right. We said we wanted more experimentation. They're actually changing the culture. You got to have visible stuff so people know you're doing something. 
And it's okay if those are relatively low impact. You know what I mean? They're not going to change your culture overnight and they're not going to like have a huge impact on the results. That's fine because we need to make sure people know it's real. But you got to pair that with the making it permanent stuff. That's like overhauling project management. That's like rolling out, uh, you know, a new internet. Um, you have to have those deeper, longer term uh, change aspects. Because if you only do the short term stuff, people think, ah, they're just doing, giving window dressing to this. They don't really care. They're and giving us new posters. <laughs> yeah, great poster. Thanks a lot. If you only do the long term stuff, they don't see anything changing. And they said, why'd you even gather this data to begin with? And so managing that actually continuously, right? Like you always have to have some low effort, low impact or medium impact stuff going on. At the same time, you have the long-term things just to keep those things going at the same level. So people are continuously reminded that this is the culture we're headed towards. Um, and so that's, that's where our long-term work with clients has been more um, like rewarding for them is in the is doing really good ongoing culture management right like treating this like like a the true business function that it is and having metrics and having processes and keeping on top of it and i mean it's just like financial management you don't get to say i'm too busy and not do finances <laughs> right but i get people give me that for culture i'm like not the ones. they are managing this on a regular basis and their employees see that and that's yeah. one of the reasons why they say yeah amen to that well this of course as always we have completely run out of time um but there's so much more exciting you know deep stuff in this data um, and so much more that we could share with you uh, of course we'll have all the relevant links to everything um, in the podcast description um, but jamie thank you so much for coming in and giving us uh, your insights um, just so everybody knows, Jamie is the one um, in our little twosome <laughs> who is who's really front and center with the clients and really deep in there. So um, it's just always just really, really important for me to hear, you know, the specific stories that come out of this work, um, you know, from the real world, as opposed to just like the theory of it that I also love. <laughs> Um, but yeah, there's, it's so much good stuff. So like, we're really hoping, um, and excited for more people to experience it for themselves. Yeah. Thank, thank you me. so much, Jamie. I echo that. Thank you for the amazing work for the insights and we'll continue to share more. Hopefully this just piqued the interest and got our, our listeners thinking about different things that they can do inside their organization. So thank you so much for joining us again. We'll have to make this like a, maybe an annual thing, maybe more often, yeah, but it's really I'm, wonderful I'm, to have you back. He's always down. Yeah, let's, let's, let's get it on the calendar. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everybody. Talk to you next time. In addition to being the Empowering Workplaces host, I'm also the president of Question of Pro Workforce, and I wanted to tell you a bit more about it because it so brilliantly aligns with our concept of empowerment. At Question of Pro Workforce, we help organizations across the world better connect with their employees. We do this through continuous listening survey technology, as well as sharing our deep knowledge and expertise to help our clients know what questions to ask to most deeply connect with their workforce and take impactful action on data and insights they collect. Learn how Question Pro Workforce can be a great partner on your path to creating a really outstanding employee listening strategy and a remarkable organizational culture at Question
questionpro.com backslash workforce.